friends, fans, and followers, and welcome to another episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and I want to start today's episode just by saying, um, in this episode, we're going to talk about some things we don't normally talk about on this show, things like disordered patterns of eating, uh, restrictive diets, highly restrictive diets, um, weight loss, and the like. So if you're in a place in your life where hearing a podcast about those topics maybe isn't the best thing for your wellness and well-being, you might want to skip this one because your well-being is important to me and important to the people who create this show. All right, so let's get to it. Uh, you know, I've shared on the show before that I started dieting pretty early on in my teens and that really that started in earnest when the person who at that time was my stepfather came home and essentially told me I was fat because I had a heavy BMI. And never mind that I'm just like a large framed human being who was playing a lot of sports and has a lot of muscle like that. That wasn't relevant. Uh, and that was my first time dieting. But that was not the last time that I dieted. In my late 20s, I discovered elimination diets. And for anyone who doesn't know what elimination diets are, you cut out food groups that that particular diet, whatever that diet is, deems to be harmful. Now, there's some arguments often around elimination diets that you're removing certain food groups because those like bother the immune system or whatever. Maybe they're toxic. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter the details. It matters that it's the selling of this idea that you have to remove certain foods because they're bad for you. Now, I'm not going to name names about what I tried. It was a very popular offshoot of the paleo diet, a very restrictive version of the paleo diet. It was back in 2012. I was working as a personal trainer by that point. And the language of that diet was very aggressive to the point that if you deviated from the diet at all, you were expected to start the diet timeline over. Now, I had all of my clients read at least part of that book. The people I worked with were trying it. I got my mom to do it. And you know, part of it was that it gave us all this common language to talk about our restrictive eating. And one of those words that we threw around a lot was clean. We were clean eating because we were sticking to this very restrictive protocol. Now, what I didn't immediately catch at the time but something I can look back on from here is the shame that was coming up related to that diet. You know, I physically wasn't feeling well. Um, I had what I now understand to be, it's called, colloquially called the keto flu, but really it's that you very suddenly aggressively restricted your carbohydrates and your metabolism doesn't know how to process what it needs to get enough freaking energy to survive your day. Um, but I was having dreams about cheating on the diet. And one dream in particular, I had a cheeseburger and I, in the dream, I had a cheeseburger and I woke up crying because I'd ruined the diet and now I was going to have to start over. Uh, and now, you know, I can actually feel my face flushing as I'm recording this because I'm actually embarrassed about it in hindsight. Uh, because one person that I worked with at the time got sick every time they tried it they would spend long hours in the bathroom. I'll let you use your imagination what was happening, but they kept going back to it because they bought into this idea of clean food and healthy eating. And because I was the one that told them to do it. And they were convinced that something was wrong with them because they couldn't do this really restrictive eating pattern. And if I'm being honest in my reflection about this, it's actually that something was wrong with me 
as their practitioner. And what I understand now about how people meaningfully change their behavior and the gradual ways that our bodies adapt to their environment, I'm embarrassed and disappointed in myself. And I also own that feeling with a bit of grace and the benefit of a decade of figuring out how to meaningfully help people. It's, I'm not being hard on myself when I talk about this because I work in an industry that is obsessed with the idea of clean eating and the righteous defense of a healthy lifestyle as defined by a very narrow idea of what being healthy is and means. So today, we're gonna to talk about what happens when we take that clean eating all the way to its extreme. So you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm the host, Arlene Marshall, and I wanna tell you, what's orthorexia? So the term orthorexia was coined by the physician, Dr. Stephen Bratman in 1996. So not all that long ago in the science and psychology world. And Dr. Bratman defined it as an obsession with food's nutritional quality and its purity. But that definition is very actively still under debate. So according to a classification paper in 2015 by Coven and Arbery, they defined orthorexia as, quote, a pathological obsession with proper nutrition that is characterized by a restrictive diet, ritualized patterns of eating, and a rigid avoidance of foods believed to be unhealthy or impure. All right, so those three tick is restrictive diet, that you ritualize either what you're eating or how you're eating it, um, how it's prepared, and a rigid avoidance of foods that, you know, whatever system you're in says, oh, that's unpure or unhealthy. Now, they go on to describe that the problem with this, right, you think that, oh, well, what's so bad about a restrictive diet? You're avoiding unhealthy things. Okay, the problem is the point that it becomes disordered eating, right? The underlying tension of being healthy, it's an orthorexic pattern if it leads to nutritional deficiencies, medical problems, or a lower quality of life. And that last one feels really vague to me, but we're going to talk about that in real detail in a second. So I want to be very clear about something in the beginning here. Orthorexia is not currently recognized as a psychiatric disorder. It's not in the DSM, if you've ever heard that acronym, it stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's the book by the American Psychiatric Disorders Association that essentially establishes what are the recognized mental illnesses and how do you treat them. But there is an active call within the fields of psychiatry and psychology to establish orthorexia as a recognized eating disorder. Now, to do that, it would mean a clear diagnosis and establish how do we treat it. And part of the problem right now is that we don't have clear diagnostic criteria and there's not a lot of information about what's effective treatment. We're going to talk about that later too. But technically, I just want to be clear and honest with you as a listener that it's not currently recognized as an eating disorder. But I also want to put the thought in your head. We all know you don't have to have the manager's title in order to do the manager's job. So you might hear those three characteristics, restrictive diet, ritualized pattern of eating, and rigid avoidance of what's unhealthy or impure, and have that thought, well, how could eating healthy lead us to medical problems, nutritional deficiencies, and a lower quality of life if the point is to be healthy? Well, I want to give you an example. 
This is the immediate example that came to mind as I was putting together this show. So back in the 1950s here in the United States, there was an epidemic of heart disease. So doctors and researchers, they went out looking for why. Why all of a sudden are men in the primes of their lives having you know, heart attacks and passing early? And as they looked around at the current behaviors in America, they decided, you know what? Americans are eating a lot more fat than they've ever eaten before. So it must be the fat in their food. Never mind that everyone was smoking like a chimney, drinking alcohol like a fish, and we had a ton of unprocessed trauma from two world wars, must be the fat. So by 1960s, there was the consensus in America that low fat diets are what's healthy. And by the 80s, it had trickled out so that physicians, the federal government, the food industry, nutritionists, the food lobby, the media, everybody was on the low fat bandwagon. I am a product of the 80s. I grew up in a world that told us that margarine was better than butter. And we now know that that is not the case because we didn't understand what was actually happening in the body. Because in actuality, low fat diets deprive our bodies of something they foundationally need to create healthy hormones, to absorb fat soluble vitamins, to build mucous membranes and cell walls. You guessed it. The thing I'm talking about is fat. So someone obsessed with healthy eating in the 1980s and adhered very strictly to that conventional wisdom would actually be causing themselves nutritional deficiencies and eventually possibly medical problems just in their honest attempts to be healthy. You're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. We're talking about orthorexia and you might hear that example about fat and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Darlene, we know better now. We know better. We eat healthy fats. So let me give you a current example of a diet that has been gaining popularity primarily from podcasts and on the internet, the carnivore diet. If you are not familiar with the carnivore diet, well, it focuses, as you might guess, on eating meat primarily, but also fish, eggs, and other animal products. Now, what might surprise you about the carnivore diet is You cannot have fruits, vegetables, grains, seeds, nuts, non-animal oils, or really anything along those lines. Now, depending on whose flavor of carnivore diet you, you go by, you may or may not also be able to drink alcohol, which I always think is really weird because if you're only allowed to eat animal products, how are you eating alcohol? But whatever. The, the, the underlying ideology is this really strong focus on the idea of clean eating and ideally of locally sourced meats. Now, before you go off and try the carnivore diet, let me just share with you the Cleveland Clinic's position on the carnivore diet. So first I just point out that there's a, the carnivore diet is extremely low fiber, which can cause constipation or worse. And again, use your imagination on that one. But here's a quote from their website about the carnivore diet, quote, The carnivore diet is high in saturated fats, which can cause elevated LDL or bad cholesterol and put you at risk for heart disease. What's more, many different kinds of processed meats like bacon or some lunch meats are loaded with sodium and have been linked to certain types of cancers. And a diet high in sodium can cause kidney problems and high blood pressure. But wait, oh, end quote, (laughs) end quote. But wait, there's more. Dietitian Kate Patton was also interviewed for the article on the Cleveland Clinic website, and she says, quote, 
If you have a pre-existing chronic condition, like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, any history of stroke or other cardiovascular disease, you should definitely not try this diet. Even if you have digestive issues, this diet can make things worse with all that protein and fat, which takes longer and harder to digest." End quote. So someone on the carnivore diet believes that they are eating in a healthful way and it can cause medical problems and nutritional deficiencies. And there are lots of other ways that restrictive eating can cause nutritional deficiencies. But earlier I pointed out that the third effect, lower quality of life, is a little bit vague. And how could restrictive eating lower one's quality of life? And what about other restrictive diets? Maybe you're not going to go on an all-meat diet tomorrow, but are there other ways that this could show up in your life? Because it's not a formal, official psychiatric disorder, there is not full consensus on what the hallmarks of orthorexia are. But there are some common themes that I want to share with you. And as I unpack these, I think it's going to become obvious how it can affect someone's quality of life. So the first is just a full-on preoccupation with food, specifically the nutritional value, the preparation, the exclusion of unhealthy or unclean ingredients. Now, I want to own that a preoccupation with food is one of the hallmarks of any disordered eating. But working in the fitness industry, I spend a lot of time with people who are preoccupied with their food, and a subset of those people are specifically preoccupied with the cleanliness and the quality and the healthfulness of their food. So if you're out there spending an inordinate amount of time researching what foods are clean or healthy and absorbed in social media po posts about those ideas, that's what we're talking about here. You are ruminating about food. If you are waking up in the middle of the night with a nightmare that you had a cheeseburger and now you're going to cry about it, that should be a warning sign. Darlene from 10 years ago. So preoccupation with food. And along with that preoccupation with food is a sense of value, of importance, of specialness from the food's cleanliness, and that you end up thinking that you are better than someone else who doesn't eat that way. And I'm a little uncomfortable talking about this on the show, if I'm being fully honest, because again, I spend a lot of time in circles where people gain their sense of self their personal value from saying, well, this is how I eat, as if they are some kind of superhero, and that other people are somehow less than because they don't eat the same way. Number three on this tick list is food rules, especially extreme food rules. And when we talk about clean eating specifically in our current context, this is typically around having sugar, fat, salt, gluten, dairy, GMOs, or any artificial ingredients or processed foods. And when those rules become so rigid that the person struggles to relate socially, that's when we're saying like, eh, maybe this relationship that you're developing with how you feel your body isn't actually helping you emotionally, mentally, and socially. And from a wellness lens, we're trying to take care of the holistic self not just this one area of self. So you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall, and we're unpacking what are the characteristics of orthorexia, which is really an obsession with clean eating, 
taking to the point of being disordered in some way. So we've already established that some of the criteria, it's a preoccupation with food. It's the, that you get the sense of importance, your value, your specialness as a person from the cleanliness of your food. You've got some rules around those around your food, and some of those rules might have to do with is the food good or bad, and associating that with value judgments, not only of the foods, but of the people eating those foods. So you'd say like, oh, that person is a healthful and good person because they do eat this way, and this other person is a bad person because they eat this other way. So along with that comes anxiety or other challenging emotions around what's in your food, how your food's prepared, maybe spending hours planning and preparing food so that it meets that standard of what's clean and what's pure. And along with that comes anxiety or maybe even fear about making a mistake and a feeling of shame when you go off the rails a little bit. And as a coach, I have encountered this so many times Somebody sets out with their best intentions, something comes up, they go to a family event, they go to a social event, and they have to choose between not eating at all, because that would be off the plan, or eating something that they then have a negative emotional reaction to. So that is very real. Uh, and then this last uh, hallmark kind of category of where we're starting to go as a definition of orthorexia is food fixations that then affect your social interactions. So whether it's from judging other people or you're afraid that you're gonna go somewhere and they won't have the right foods available and because you're spending so much time on your special foods, you're refusing to eat foods that other people prepared or you're refusing to eat out and that causes you to limit social interaction. That is where we get this negative effect in the quality of life. And that's that third effect of orthorexia is you can't enjoy your life because you're so obsessed with getting the food part right. Now, there's gonna be some people that push back on that, that it's not an eating disorder to have standards. It's not an eating disorder to wanna to eat well. And I was one of those people. I had this very rigid set of foods that I believed were clean and good. And I was very defensive of them in a way that I expected my family to change how they ate and what they did to show up for me. So to the person who is saying like, wow, well, there's nothing wrong with healthy eating. You got to have standards. Is there a threshold where those standards become harmful? And how will you know that you're over that line or that the people around you are maybe over that line? Okay, so I want to give two big old caveats here. And I think these are really important to call out. Now, the first is that disordered eating in general is a complex psychological issue. And I am not here to tell anyone whether or not they specifically have an eating disorder. But what I am trying to do is bring your attention to a phenomenon that I have personally experienced. And I will be honest, it took so many years of healing and searching in myself to even be able, this is probably the first time that I have ever admitted publicly to having disordered eating patterns in such a transparent and honest way. Um, because no, I can't, I can't have disordered eating. I'm a personal trainer. Uh, and I can feel myself starting to get emotional in admitting it because what does it mean if as a wellness person, I struggled with it myself? 
Um, what I think it actually means is that we're all human and in the process, but that doesn't mean that that little voice isn't there judging me in my own mind. So what I want to do is just bring your attention to a phenomenon that I've personally experienced. I see it all the time in the fitness and wellness space and that I believe that social media is exploiting us and making worse for the sakes of clicks and selling stuff. Because we know that two very effective psychological tactics used to market diet and weight loss programs and books is to say that everything you thought you knew is wrong and to demonize current nutritional patterns. And there are plenty of people out there just pumping out content that isn't factual and accurate and then makes people afraid to go about their day-to-day -day lives that they currently have been living them. And so the other big caveat, because I told you there were two, is orthorexia is not the same thing as having to eat in a particular way because of an actual diagnosable health condition, right? If you have celiac disease, you can't eat gluten, you get sick. If you have lactose intolerance, you can't eat dairy because you'll get sick. Or you, it's, if you have an autoimmune disease and you're eating on the wall protocols so that you're not unintentionally introducing a compound that flares your immune system, not eating something because it actually makes you ill is not the same as not eating something because someone on the internet told you it was toxic. And we see all the time the fear of illness being exploited in spaces that glorify clean eating. And as someone with a chronic illness, I find that ableist. The, whoo, you might get sick. Don't eat the toxic food. Ah as opposed to making people sick by making them afraid to just eat and be and live and be happy in their bodies and their lives. But you could have none of those things. You could get brainwashed by a TikToker and you know, you're out there compromising your health, thinking that you're, you're thinking you're compromising your health because you're having an ice cream cone. And I want to posit that the stress of the shame when you do have the ice cream cone, is actually far worse for you than the shift in the blood sugar that you'd experience. And you could just blunt that blood sugar shift by going for a walk. All right, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. We're talking about orthorexia. And part of the challenge with orthorexia is we have glorified the idea of healthy eating in the US fitness and wellness culture. We deified being skinny, and then we tie that clean eating, healthy, ideal, skinny appearance to that person's value. So it makes sense that we would then project that value into the value of the foods themselves. So what do we do? Well, again, gonna be fully transparent here. There is not a lot of research out there about what is actually effective in the diagnosis or treatment of orthorexia. But there is hope. There is a study published in December of 2021, so not quite a year from the time we're recording this. Uh, it's by Rogers, White, and Berry. And it's got, a, it's got a nice sample size. It's 205 participants. But it's a survey study, which is less ideal than like intervention research where you're actually like pulling the levers on what people do. But, you know, we, we could go down a rabbit hole about nutrition research, but six, 605 participants is, is a good baseline. So the study is actually looking at the relationship of prevalence of orthorexic behaviors. So those things we talked about before, those hallmarks of what makes orthorexia, um, 
and the prevalence of intuitive eating behaviors and positions. And so if you're not familiar with intuitive eating, we're going to go through what intuitive eating principles are, but just generally consider that it's, it's kind of like a philosophy around eating as opposed to a diet, meaning like telling you what to eat. So what they found was that for women, which, you know, the men in the, the, part, the study have less effect, but for women especially, the more they're leading into the positive eating behaviors of, of intuitive eating, the less they demonstrate the hallmarks of orthorexia. So again, like the more you buy into these intuitive eating ideas, the less you're showing the negative effects of like nutritional deficiencies, restrictive eating and compromising like social interaction. So here are those four principles of intuitive eating. So the first is unconditional permission to eat. Foods aren't good or bad. And you're not doing the blame, shame, guilt game with yourself because you had you know, a cookie or that ice cream example we just had. So you just have this unconditional permission. You want to eat something, you let, you eat it. You don't tell yourself like, oh, I can't have that. So that's hallmark number one of intuitive eating. The second is eating for physical reasons instead of emotional ones. So you eat when you're hungry, you stop when you're full, and you're not having foods because you want an emotional payoff related to food. So if you want something, you just eat it, but you're not going to be like, ah, I had a bad day. I deserve a brownie. Third one is reliance on your hunger and satiety cues for whether or not you eat. So that would be things like instead of tracking in an app or having other food rules, you listen, you, you tune into your body. Now, I'll be honest. I have a small problem with this one. As someone who's worked in fitness for a long time and worked specifically with people who have decades long histories of diet culture and dieting and extreme caloric restriction, the more you have dieted, the less responsive your hunger and satiety cues are. And so it takes some work to recondition those signals in the body. And so I just want to own, if you're listening to this and, and you're like, oh yeah, intuitive eating, I can just not eat if I'm not hungry. Like there's a process here and I want you to just know that that exists. And then the fourth hallmark, is the ability to recognize that foods have a lot of different roles in one's life. So NASM's uh, Certified Wellness Coaching course lists nutrition, tastes, energy, and enjoyment as the different roles in one's life for nutrition. And I want to add to that cultural expression. Because many of what we label as bad foods in America, they're expressions of a cultural identity. And by demonizing them, we are alienating people from their own history and heritage. And so, but, but to get back to intuitive eating, it's just recognizing that food plays all these different roles in our lives. My dad and I were talking last night, my grandmother makes something that as far as I know, nowhere else in the world, they call it chili sauce. But here in upstate New York, it's called chili sauce. And it's, it's something my grandmother makes. My dad got a jar of it yesterday given to him by his sister, like whatever. The point being, it is a cultural food that has a ton of sugar in it. But the good part of it is the nostalgia, the connection to heritage, the feeling of being part of something lasting and bigger than myself that's been passed down generation to generation. That matters. And being able to accept that without shame, blame, or guilt when I engage with that cultural heritage. To me, that really matters. So we've had a bit of wandering in this episode. And that's because orthorexia isn't simple. 
And it's not even clearly defined right now. But what we know is that disordered eating hallmarks are preoccupation with food in a way that becomes restrictive, that then harms not just the body, but socially, emotionally, and mentally, the person engaging with it. And I wanna reiterate here, disordered eating is a very complex psychological issue. So if you believe that you are struggling with anything that was unpacked in this episode, I wanna strongly encourage you, get evaluated by a qualified professional. Don't fall into that internet trap of hearing something somebody said online and thinking, oh my God, I'm orthorexic. Talk to somebody about it. And if you are a professional working in this space, you're a trainer, you're a coach, I hope you'll take this moment in this episode to check yourself. Is your dogma about the cleanliness of foods accurate? And how do you know? And are you qualified to say either way? And are you verifying where you're getting your information? And are you pushing a restrictive agenda that is affecting your client's long-term health, not just physically, but also mentally, socially, and emotionally? And when you push a restrictive position, are you offering healthful alternatives or are you leaving people even more confused than they were before? Because as the person they end up working with later in their life, I'll tell you, unpacking and reprogramming that stuff takes a long time, it can be really hard and very confusing for people. So I'm gonna close just by appreciating, you know, I do this show each week and sometimes the topics are fun and easy and light and sometimes they're heavy and hard. And this one is really hard for me. It's hard as somebody who has been in and out of diet culture for decades It's hard as someone who's been adjacent to the fitness industry and felt like there's so many things about it that are harmful to myself and to people I eventually end up working with and even to my colleagues, though they're the ones out there saying some of that stuff. And I think it's really frustrating and hard for people who aren't in the industry, but are the people that we serve because they trust us and they want to do what is right for them in a lasting way. And there's a lot of confusion in the space about what's actually meaningful and healthful. So hopefully this episode at least gives you some things to think about in terms of how you're approaching your own health and well-being. And remember that negative trifecta, if what you're doing is causing shame, blame, and guilt, then is it really the thing that is most healthful for you in the long run? All right, we're going to leave it there. If you're a fan of the show, I hope that you will subscribe wherever you are listening. If you want to help support the show, you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, or they now have reviews on Spotify. And I would so appreciate and value if you would do that for us. And if you are on YouTube, subscribe to that NASM channel. If you want to follow me, you can shoot me a DM. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find on Instagram. I'm darlene.coach. And I would love to hear your feedback, your ideas, your requests for episodes. I'm so grateful to get to do the show with you every week. Thank you so much for being here and be well.